You're listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Roach. This is Season 9, Episode 4, The Artist Roundtable, Part 2. In Part 1 of this conversation, my guests, singer-songwriter John Mark McMillan and author-illustrator Vesper Stamper, talked with me about everything from Kanye West to separating the art from the artist and the impact of social media on our mental health. If you haven't heard this opening segment of the conversation, I want to invite you to go back and give it a listen as well. In today's segment, we'll continue this conversation on mental health and the artist, adding to it our thoughts on art and identity, genius and madness, and the dangers of isolation. Patrons of the podcast can enjoy an early release of the third and final segment to our discussion at patreon.com slash makersandmystics. I had someone recently asked me about original sin, and I was like, I really don't want to talk about this. <laughs> <laughs> are, are babies born sinners? And I was like, I cannot say that babies are born sinners. I'm just sorry. I know the theology. I know the whole thing. I just can't. I'm like, you think, do they have a choice? You know, like, I just, I'm not, I can't. But then I realized something. It's like, actually, I think that everything that Scripture calls sinful like everything comes from a perceived lack all the way back mm -hmm. to the very first sin, which was interesting because, you know, the in the garden, the serpent comes and says, uh, if you eat this fruit, you'll be, you'll be like God. Right. Yeah. And, and what's interesting is, is they were already made in God's image. So weren't they already like God? And so this is, this is, and I hate talking about sin. I even hate the word because it just gets like so weird. It's like, but when you talk about sin and what is sinful, everything that scripture calls sinful comes from a perceived lack. Mm -hmm. And then it gets complicated when there's a legitimate lack. Right. Right. That's where things get really complicated. But, the, you know, like if we're in a war, I'm going to get killed. So if someone comes and busts my door and kill my family, like I'm going to I'm going to kill that person. I'll feel terrible about it. I'll ask for forgiveness, but like I will kill that person before they kill my children. I mean, it's just will, right? Is that sin or not? I don't know. I'd say no, but someone could say yes. Maybe a big argument, but anytime that the lack is perceived, right? This is definitely a sinful thing. I think this is where, you know, why would you, why would you kill another person? Well, because I need what they have. Why do you need what they have? Well, because what I have isn't enough, right? Why would you lie? Well, because they're going to think something about me if I don't tell the truth, or I'm going to be in trouble if I don't, if I tell the truth, or they don't need to know this because I need, and see the need, want, I have to. Mm -hmm. It's like, why would you commit adultery? Well, it's why would you um, just go through the entire list? It all comes from a perceived lack. And so this is one of my problems. I know we didn't mean to get into this, but when people get into original sin and total depravity of man, I'm like, I think you're missing it a little bit when we talk about it that way. Because the idea of depravity is where sin is actually born from. you know. And so if you want to say that your identity is that you're loved by God, you know, yeah. then all of a sudden it's like, if you're loved by God, you have to try to work from another place, not a sense of lack. 
if I'm a worthless sinner, then I'm always working from a place of lag. Mm-hmm. Right. I didn't mean to get so theological. Is that no, cool? Do we good. do theology still on Makers and Mystics? <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> I was just going to say, John Mark, that you know, um, if you're wanting a different understanding of original sin, you should hang out with the Orthodox because mm. they don't have that doctrine. Orthodox oh. Christians, I'm saying. Oh, thank um, God for the Orthodox. <laughs> It's it's an interesting conversation though, um, you know, to have with somebody who knows more about it than me. But I was yeah. going to say, um, you know, I think that that is such a helpful distinction. And I think when you, it, it's good to understand your starting point, you know, of of sin and of our our proclivities and everything. And I think it it really demands a re a, a reframing or a redefinition, like of our definitions. So if we're talking about our identity you know, reframing that the definition of identity as yes, being made in the image of God, being loved by God and being a lover of God, like that can encompass everything, every aspect of life. life. There's nothing that that doesn't touch. And, you know, the definition of being an artist, you know, what does it mean to be an artist? Does it mean to be famous? Does it mean to have impact? Does it mean to uh, be to, to have made it or to have a big break? Or, or does it just mean that art is our way of making sense of our own existence? Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And everybody does that in a different way, whether you're an artist or, or somebody else. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, <laughs> think about Kim and Kanye, right? Like, much has been said of the fact that like um, Kim, Kim doesn't really have like a talent to speak of. And yet, you know, she's like mega famous. Right. So she too is just somebody who's trying to make sense of her own existence. And, you know, I can't judge her for that, but as artists, are we going to define ourselves by the, these external, you know, landing points, like the definition of success or, or whatever, or are we going to understand that, we have the privilege of endless discovery. Like we are the ones, we artists are the ones who get this privilege of decades and decades and decades of endless discovery and growth. Hmm. And sometimes that means that the income will not come in. And sometimes that means that the reviews will not be good. And so, you know, because, but it's because you're in this process of growth and discovery. And if you understand that you're somebody who's made in the image of God, and that that is eternal, like that doesn't go away and neither do your opportunities. You know what I mean? Like we'll be able to create millions and millions and millions of things and years and relationships and all of that. Like there is no lack, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So what an amazing privilege, like on my worst day as an artist, when I'm having the worst performance, you know, that I, that's all part of the the mix. That's all part of that process of discovery, you know? Yeah. Well, what's interesting for me when I'm hearing you guys talk about this is that this conversation goes to identity for me. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about lack and we talk about original sin or theological things like that, you know, for me, I've always been an advocate for fighting for, especially in uh, faith communities or in faith circles. Like I've, 
I've always felt like I had to fight for the art as being a part of our identity in a healthy way. Mm. And and I think that I've reevaluated that in some ways, but I still hold true to what I've I've often said throughout the years, you know, that our art is the branches, but it's not the root. But it is it is still a part of our expression. It is still part of our identity. But that root of our identity has to go into a soil that's deeper than what we make. Right. You know, of course, for believers in Jesus, that is rooted in being rooted in Christ, you know. But I think that when we talk about lack, that's why we could so easily look toward our art and the things that we make to fill the space in our hearts that is meant to be uh, rooted in something deeper than that. So we don't put the pressure on our art. We can't put an existential pressure on our art to give validation to our existence. Mm. That's what I'm saying. I don't. I, I want to free my art from the need to validate my existence. And I think for so many years of my life, I looked to my art to validate my existence. Right. It, it's like, it's as though... Art is not the container you live in. It's an element inside the container that you are also in. Mm-hmm. Now, let me bring this back to the home plate right quick, because we're talking about mental health yeah. <laughs> <laughs> as it relates to the artist. And some might think we've gotten way off into the woods, but we haven't at all. When you don't have that rootedness, in your identity, in something that goes deeper than just the works that we make. And that lack is fueling the things that we, that we do in our life. That leads to some crazy things in our mental state. I mean, it has in my own life, and I think it has in, in it, both of you guys have probably experienced that at some point. But what's interesting for me is that this conversation comes around. We can't talk about mental health and the artist without tackling the old stereotype of genius and madness. We can't have this conversation without talking about the fact that so many of the acclaimed artists in history were alcoholics or complete wrecks in their personal life, and yet they are creating these beautiful things. And Bringing that back to even you used the example of Edison early in the conversation, but there's there's two different lines of thought on this. I'd love to hear from both of you on, and are either of you familiar with Kay Redfield Jameson? No, she's a psychologist that she wrote um, a book called Touched with Fire, and it talked about the relationship between manic depression and creativity. She also wrote uh, a book that is a part memoir of her own story called An Unquiet Mind. And um, anyway, she talks about the relationship between creativity, genius, and madness, or, you know, deep bipolar and mood swings and things like that. And then you've got Elizabeth Gilbert, who completely doesn't buy into that at all. And if you've read Big Magic, she says this, talking about why do we want to follow the examples of people who shattered their lives, thinking that that was what it took to be creative, to to find that genius or to find that greatness that's inside of them. And she said, uh, 
To honor their example, follow these fundamental rules. Drink as much as you possibly can. Sabotage all your relationships. Wrestle so vehemently against yourself that you come up bloodied every time. Express constant dissatisfaction with your work. Jealously compete against your peers. Begrudge anybody else's victories. Proclaim yourself cursed, not blessed by your talents. Attach your sense of self-worth to external rewards. Be arrogant when you are successful and self-pitying when you fail. Honor darkness above light. Die young. Blame creativity for having killed you. Oh, my God. Wow. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Those are some zingers, yeah. What, what a quote. I want to speak to this on a, on a personal level. I don't have mental illness, but I have a parent that does. And so I grew up in a, in a household where this was very present. And so I take my mental health very seriously. And like you were saying, John Mark, like I take a very preventative approach to this. I do have a therapist. I will hopefully have her for a very, very long time. I check in with her about once a month. Not because I necessarily have anything profound going on, but again, it's more prevention and it's, I have people who depend on me. And so I want to make sure that I'm, I'm living a balanced life. It's very important to me. I think that this concept of genius and madness is a very modern construct. And I've talked about this before. You guys have probably heard me talk about this before that this kind of mindset really only came about during the Renaissance. Mm. Before this, artists were not these exalted geniuses. They were artisans. They were craftspeople. Or they were mystics. Uh So if they were creating public art, you know, let's say art for nobility or royalty, you know, they would be part of a guild. Uh Uh-huh. They would be, and they would be a member of a guild that had certain uh, very tangible skill qualifications that could be measured. Uh, being part of a guild meant that you were part of a community who was, you know, upholding each other's artistic integrity and, and things like that. But but it was the it was the profession that was the thing, not the individual artisan. You brought your skill to the profession. And in the case of, of artists living within the confines of a convent, let's say, there was the ability to, to channel that energy. And I would even say that mystical energy, uh-huh. right? And so this is where you get a lot of the great mystics who were able to articulate what they were seeing and experiencing of this making sense of existence because they had the channeled ability, the, the channeled energy, the ability to channel their energy and their time toward that end. Mm-hmm. If you look at the way that we live in modern times, we are so completely fractured from ourselves. There's no possible way that we can create a life in the modern world. That, that world is gone. Mm-hmm. Unless you do, you know, do something like join a, a monastery or something like that. And even then, even then, there's the I, I know monks who are on social media and, and giving YouTube interviews and, you know, and do, you know, they're just as affected by the modern world and have to guard jealously the ability to 
commune with God and have that that channeled energy. And so I think that the, this concept of genius and madness has something to do, and I can't judge people with mental illness. So that's not what I'm trying to do. I'm not a I'm not a doctor. I'm not a professional in this in this manner. But I wonder if that propensity toward madness is a product of modernity and has something to do with, with that inability to channel that fire, you know, that, mm-hmm. and that energy, that creative energy and that openness. It doesn't have a container. Again, it's like, it's that concept of a container and what's contained. If you don't have a container for it, or if, you're, if your container is shattered, then all of that stuff is going to be in chaos. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think too, we, we love, I think the wild west, the legends of, you know, Billy the kid and these people who did these like crazy and extreme things, you know, uh, like I've, uh, we were driving through, I think it was Texas and there's a sign for Billy the kid's, um, grave and there's a little house there, you know, and what did he do? He, he killed a bunch of people. He was lived recklessly, <laughs> but it's so fascinating. We're fascinated by this wild, crazy type of person. And his grave is there and there's a cage around his grave because he's so famous. People would steal his gravestone, the headstone of his grave. And, um, and then there's the joke that like, you know, cause he broke out of prison so many times or whatever that like, you can't even, even when he's dead, you can't like keep his <laughs> tombstone, even his tombstone. So they have to lock his tombstone up. But we tend to be obsessed. And I think that um, uh, in, in literature recently, I've read about the concept of clone characters. There are these different characters and all the characters are really just a clone of the protagonist. And a clone character is either someone who's like the protagonist in some way or very different in some way. But, and I read somewhere that someone said every character in a book is ultimately a clone character of the protagonist. And you see this in, you know, the dark Knight, Batman, the Joker says life doesn't make sense. Right. And then uh, two face says, no, it, it, it's by these very specific things that it makes sense. And Batman is trying to figure out who, who to be. And they're both extreme versions of his own character of his own inner thing you see it when the three little pigs right the the story is really about the third pig but the third pig only makes sense because you have the first pig and the second pig otherwise you just have a wolf <laughs> who shows up and tries to blow on a house and that'd be the dumbest story ever because you'd be like of course it's a house it's not gonna fall down this is the wolf gonna blow on my doors you know it only makes sense because the first pig and second pig got eaten because you know clone characters well so we see these characters and these wild words. We're um, fascinated by Kim and Kanye because they're extreme versions of ourselves. And we, mm. we love that. The problem mm. is those, those extreme things about them are probably also very extreme, you know, and, and there's just that balance to life that if you're, you give too much to any area of your life, you like you lose in another area, mm-hmm. you know, but I also think that artists tend to defy convention a little bit. And see, convention is not a bad thing. Convention is sort of what we're, we've learned up till now. Like the line in the middle of the road is literally just a line drawn with paint. That's all it is. You know, it's not a real, it's not a thing. It's the line in the middle of the road is just a line. However, 
if you decide I'm not going to obey the convention of the line, what's going to happen to you is you're going to likely wreck. And then there, of course, but then this is where the artist comes in. There's times when there's a pileup. There's times when it doesn't make sense. And the artist is the one who's like, well, I'm going to drive across the line and get around this and go on. Mm-hmm. Right. And so we love the artist for that. But to live as though those things don't exist at all. I guess we're talking about constructs. It's like all these constructs sure. exist to help us live and survive. Mm-hmm. But some of them cease to make sense. And some of them were a little bit not right to begin with. And the artist is the one who's like, the emperor's not wearing any clothes, guys. Yeah. I don't know you guys. I see things I shouldn't be seeing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The artist is the one who's like, they're brave enough to stand up and be like, Let's, can we rethink this? Does this really make sense? Mm-hmm. But the problem is that if you do that with your whole life, you right. don't benefit from the experience of others. Mm-hmm. You don't benefit from the things that other people learned that in, instead of learning things the hard way, you could, you could learn it the way other people. Learn. I mean, when I was young, I remember I, I was like, I, I look back at my younger self and I'm like, I didn't, I didn't think anyone was good. I didn't trust anybody. Mm-hmm. Mm. I was like thinking of the people I was with and I was like, I could have learned so much, but I thought that like, I was, I don't want to say I was better. I, I don't think that I thought I was better, but I was like, why should I listen to you? Mm-hmm. But actually I had a lot to learn. And so I wonder if, if the mental health thing can be connected to that where it's like, because the artist naturally defies convention. Mm-hmm. I mean, it could, honestly, it could go both ways. It could not just be either, or it could be both. Yeah. As in some people, because of their mental health issues, they sort of defy convention because convention doesn't make sense to them because they're not fully connected to mm-hmm. the way things ought to work in small ways or in big ways. And, and the product of that could be real fascinating. They could make things that are pretty exciting and interesting. And you would maybe call that greatness. Or there could be people who are like, you know, that's just, maybe they don't have the mental health thing, but they, um, they, they're just more apt to toss convention to the side and they might, you know, lose a little bit of touch. And I think that's one of the problems is there's probably two situations that look the same where one is mental health and one is not. But as they get more extreme, it becomes more and more obvious that one thing maybe um, is a, is a mental health issue. I mean, I'll say this watching the end of the Kanye documentary, like, such a great documentary, but that third episode, it really did something to me because I definitely saw myself in him. Mm-hmm. Like I really did. I was like, oh man. I was like, and, and, and I really love the documentary. It doesn't um, discount anything that he's doing, but where you see he's, he seems to be losing touch a little bit. I was like, mm-hmm. I feel like I have felt the way he's feeling. Like I, it made me want to check myself and be like, okay, mm-hmm. I need to, make sure that I'm taking care of myself. I, you know, cause I feel like I probably have some of those same issues, maybe just not as extreme. Yeah. I can tell you what I saw in that episode, man, that spoke to me in the same way though, is when you follow that whole documentary from the first episode, second episode to the third, I saw him get more and more isolated mm-hmm. within himself. The more yes. that, his mm-hmm. fame grew and everything mm-hmm. that, that blew up on the outside, oh, yes. everything on the inside was isolation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I know from my own experience with this stuff, you know, that isolation is, is, is the killer, you know? Mm-hmm. And I saw that in him in that third 
episode and, and my heart went out for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, you watch in the, in the first and second episode, whenever they're in the studio, everyone is just like on fire. They're all moving and yeah. everyone is just yeah. like loving it. Yeah. And then in episode three, everyone looks like a deer in the headlights. Like Right. It's true. You know, like people are just like speaking out of turn. People are like, you know what I'm saying? Just like yes. loving what he's doing. But then in that, in the third episode, they're recording and everyone looks, they just look petrified. Wow. Mm. Like no one wants to say anything. Yeah. And the, and the vibe is so not good. Yeah. You know, and even people like, I mean, Bieber's there and he's a big deal. And even he's like, he was like, get me out of here. <laughs> <laughs> but so I think there's something too. Yeah. The 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 isolation. Yeah. You know? I think it's um it's interesting thinking about this situation. I haven't seen that episode yet, but my husband and I were talking the other day about power. We were thinking about just what's going on in the world. I, I don't have to say any more than that, but we were just we found ourselves befuddled, like these people who are in power, we don't understand how somebody would want that mm. <laughs> and what it would take to get to that level where you literally think that you can control global events, mm. right? But we started to think about it in terms of, okay, well, we belong to the kingdom of God. So our concerns are really different than those kind of structures of power. And there's a reason why they don't make sense to us. It's because we're, we don't belong to that kingdom, mm. right? So I think celebrity is another kind of power like that. And just like there's, you know, any sort of like world leader or um, any kind of cult of personality, let's say, yeah, the people around you are scared to say no, either because you've become a tyrant or because they have their own game that they're playing to try to rise through the ranks, Mm -hmm. right? They're trying to leverage, you know, this recording session, you know, to get to the next level themselves or whatever. And I I just, again, like I come back to the the thought that we're not meant to handle that kind of thing. You know, a a friend of mine was telling me a story today about um, a certain, a certain person she had to manage uh, who had a ridiculous thing in their rider, you know, and the whole company was like, you know, making sure that they found this one thing. And it was like actually really rare where they were living. And, and so then when this celebrity was presented with this precious thing, you know, this person was like, oh yeah, no, I, I have the same one at home, you know? And it's just, it's a ridiculous example, but it's like, what is the culture, what's the backstage culture or what's the studio culture or whatever that breeds that kind of thing where people feel like they're they're entitled to more and more of that or that they they can use people as stepping stones. And like, what does that do to the psyche and to the ego? Yeah, eventually you are going to be sitting in a room alone, isolated, because and nobody's mm-hmm. going to know how to relate to you. And mm-hmm. I think that whether Kanye has mental health issues or not, his celebrity alone, you know, would breed something like that. And I mean, 
let's even think back, you know, let's get away from Kanye for a minute, but any example of like a famous artist that we know that became a tyrant or became an abuser or whatever, how out of touch were they with reality so that they became an island and everyone around them just trying to like serve and keep stoking that fire and serve this being that, you know, wasn't, was barely even human anymore. Am I (laughs) probably not making sense at all at that point, but maybe you get my point. I think you're making sense. And then it becomes, it's, it's not just the person at the top. It's the whole system. It is the whole system. right? Because Mm -hmm. it's not that they are just in love and enamored. It's like, nah, like I need, I need this guy to do really good or this, girl to do really good because my income depends on them doing well. Mm-hmm. And so like, I'm not going to tell them that their marriage is falling apart because I need them to do this next record. And I need them to do this next tour because I need to, I need to make that money. And so this whole system mm-hmm. is built around that. It's not just the person at the top and there's certain, res- obviously responsibility for the person at the top, but it's the whole game. Mm-hmm. And maybe that is where when back to your original question about can you separate the art from the artist mm-hmm. and why it's important um, to consider the artist as mm-hmm. well as the art, mm-hmm. you know, because in the, and I'm, I'm usually thinking in the past, in the past, what can you do? It's like, mm-hmm. I love so many people who are not great human beings, but can't deny that their work touches me, but there's, they're dead, mm-hmm. you know, but yeah. people who are alive, and they have these uh, large organizations where it's sort of like everyone's feeding the the beast. I think Steinbeck has the best quote. He's like, uh, he's talking about the bank. He's like, the bank's a monster. And someone's like, but the bank's people. He's no, it's made of people, but the bank isn't people. The bank mm-hmm. is a monster. Mm-hmm. It's made of people. He's like, because n- not one of those single people can make the decision to turn it around. Mm-hmm. You know, and he's talking about people losing their livelihoods in the during the Great Depression. The bank is taking things away, but there's not a person who can stop it. Mm-hmm. It's it's the system. Thank you for listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Makers and Mystics and hit the subscribe button on iTunes. If you want to go deeper in these conversations on art and faith, Join our creative collective at patreon.com slash makersandmystics. We'll see you again next week. And in the meantime, keep creating. The world needs your art.